All right, if you want to find your way back to your seats, we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy today. Uh, it is February 20th, which is one of my favorite days. Not because of the weather, but because 18 years ago, I asked that lady right there to marry me. And she said yes. Not your best decision, babe, but I'm glad you made it. Also, my youngest, uh, Joshua, turned seven today. So when you have a seven-year-old as your youngest, uh, do you know what that makes me? Old. Old. Thank you. I knew. You know, first service got that one too. So why don't we, uh, we pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. God, thank you. Uh, for today. Thank you for the opportunity we have now to open your word. And God, when we open your word, you speak. And so that's why we're here, not to hear me speak, but to hear you speak. And so God, would you, like the book of Deuteronomy says, would you give us a new heart that loves you and that can obey you? God, I pray that you would speak through me or in spite of me, but you would speak to everyone here this morning. I ask in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So today we're on book five in our series, The Thread, connecting the whole story of the scripture to Jesus. It's the final book of Moses, the prophet. It's delivered at the very edge of the promised land to now the new generation, not the generation that came up out of Egypt. They all died in the wilderness because they wouldn't go into the land, but now their sons and daughters and the next generation is brought up to the edge of the land, and the question is, are they going to go in and be different than the last generation? So here's a brief intro video for you, Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy was written mostly by Moses sometime between 1440 and 1400 BC, just before the Israelites entered the Promised Land. Moses is facing a generation that did not live through Israel's slavery in Egypt, their deliverance through the Red Sea, or the receiving of the law at Mount Sinai. Before the people enter Canaan, he delivers a speech to remind them of God's promises, the importance of obeying His law, and how the previous generation failed to do so. If Israel follows the law, they will fulfill God's original calling to Abraham to be an example of God's love and blessing to all the nations. In knowing the people's inevitable failure to keep the law, Moses points to a heart issue that must be addressed. The same selfish path that led to disobedience in the garden will continue to prompt the Israelites to choose their own path over God's leading to their nation's destruction. Moses prophesies the coming of another prophet, the ultimate prophet, on the other side of Israel's coming exile, by whom their hearts will be transformed to love and obey God. I don't know how many of you guys have been reading along. I know our city groups have been gathering and talking about the book before I stand up and preach it, but... um, One of the things that always happens to me when I read the story of the people of God from the Exodus, um, I often think, what a bunch of idiots. I mean, come on. Because you see, over and over again, they see the hand of God in clear, undeniable ways, and they respond with grumbling. 
They respond with a lack of faith. They respond with fear. I mean, just think about the things that the generation that God rescued out of Egypt got to experience. They saw God pour out the plagues on Egypt, the Egyptians and their false gods. They saw the Lord part the waters of the Red Sea and walked across on dry land and then saw the Lord destroy the armies of Egypt. They saw Mount Sinai literally smoking and shaking and heard the audible voice of God boom from the mountain. They, they experienced God miraculously providing manna for them every single day. They would wake up and they would go outside and there was manna or bread on the ground that would feed them in the wilderness. God's presence led them as a, as a pillar of cloud by day and a, a pillar of fire by night. After Moses would go into the tent of meeting, he would come out and literally his face was radiating with the glory of God because he had just spoken with him face to face. They drank water miraculously from a rock twice that God provided via miracle. They experienced miraculous healing when a bunch of uh, venomous serpents bit them and God healed them with a bronze snake scepter. I mean, they saw so many things and yet time and time, they forgot the Lord. They grumbled. They talked about how good they had things in Egypt. And finally, when it came time for them to enter the promised land in Numbers 13 and 14, they get scared because even though the promised land is beautiful, there are heavily fortified cities and many warriors in the promised land. And so they get scared. Even after all God had done, they didn't think he would actually deliver them into the promised land. And so that generation dies, wandering in the wilderness, having the promise of God being saved and called out, but not getting to see the fulfillment of God's promises. And now the book of Deuteronomy is essentially the new people of God, that new generation coming up to the very edge of the promised land and Moses' final words to them, where they reaffirm the covenant that God gave to the people on Mount Sinai. But now a new generation is going to go in and take possession of the land. And so the question becomes, are they going to be any different than the previous generation? The book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons or messages given by Moses where they reaffirm this, and he tells them something about the future. But before we move on, I just want to, I just have to say, when it comes to that generation that left Egypt, you and I are way, off, way too much like the Israelites. We are way more like them than we would like to admit, aren't we? We may not see the supernatural miracle of God like parting the waters of the Red Sea, but according to Jesus' words, if we've seen the conversion of a sinner, we've actually seen a greater miracle where God gives new life and pours out his spirit on people. We've, we've heard God and seen God respond to our prayers for provision and prayers for healing and protection, and yet we are just as prone to forget as they were, just as prone to not trust God when it gets real in our own lives. Why do I bring that up? Because now this is a new generation, and Moses' words to them are every bit as relevant as today as they were then. Not that we are reaffirming the old covenant, but that what God requires of his people then, how God wants to relate to his people, actually helps us to see and understand how God relates to us even to this day. Moses has spent a, a number of chapters. The first, 12, or first 11 chapters of the book of Deuteronomy is kind of his first speech to them. And so he's reminded them of what God has done and the miraculous signs of God and even the new uh, law that God has, has written on tablets of stone for them and, and the new priest now that Aaron has died and Eliezer, his son, has come. 
And then he says these words in, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 22, kind of closing this first section. This is what he says. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So after summarizing for them what God had done leading to this moment, Moses gets down to business. He says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? In light of all of the things that you've been reminded of and commanded to do, let's get down to the core of it all. And he gives them five commandments or five requirements of how God wants his people to relate to him. But for our purposes, the second and the fifth one are essentially the same. So four things is what you need to remember. What does God require of you? To fear him, to obey him, to love him, and to serve him. We see it right here in the text. What does the Lord God require of you? Verse 12. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. These four commandments get to the heart of how God wants his people to relate to him. Fear him, obey him, love him, and serve him. Let's explore each of these ideas briefly. What does it mean to fear the Lord, your God? Does it mean that we are terrified of him? That we would never go near him? No. No, to fear the Lord means to give him the weight that is his due. It is a reverential fear or sense of awe that we are to attribute to him. We do not come to God as peers. He is God and we are not. There is a healthy fear of him in how we relate. Now, one of the things I really enjoy doing in my spare time is woodworking. I've picked it up over the last couple years. It's a, it's a great hobby to take a piece of wood and turn it into something beautiful and something functional and hopefully beautiful and functional at the same time. If any of you guys talk for a living or do a lot of things like that, it's really therapeutic sometimes to work with your hands, isn't it? And, and one of the great joys of this hobby is that my, my son Luke, who's 11, has, has joined me in this hobby as of late. We've been making things like cutting boards together. That's the last one that he made for his grandma. He's pretty proud of it, and he is super excited that I used him as the sermon illustration without his permission. So... But here's the thing about woodworking. If you don't have the right tool, it doesn't go well, right? 
But having the right tool is pretty awesome. Like power tools, like table saws and miter saws and planers, they're stinking cool. Really cool. However, when you are using them, there needs to be a healthy fear of them in you, and especially if you're teaching your 11-year-old how to use them. Why? Because many people have lost fingers to table saws, which is why he doesn't get to use that one yet, right? But the miter saw and the other things, that there should be a healthy fear knowing that if you don't, if you don't use this thing properly, you might not have all the fingers on your hand that you do now, Right? Now, the Lord is not a tool for us to use, and so the illustration breaks down. But just as we are to have a healthy fear of a table saw or a power tool when doing woodwork, so God's people are to have a healthy fear of him when we relate to him. In fact, the book of Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so if you want to be a wise person, meaning someone who can take the information of what is true and make good decisions in everyday life in light of those things, that's what wisdom is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You are not wise unless you acknowledge and have a healthy reverence and awe of the God who created you. And so God says, I want you to fear me. Second, it leads to obey me. We are told to walk in all of his ways, the second of the commandments, and the fifth, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding today for your good. We are to obey God. Moses tells them, don't just walk in some of his ways, walk in all of his ways. Obey him in all that he has commanded. See him as your guide to the good life. Now, sometimes we take the approach of picking and choosing what God says. Of, oh, I like what you said here, God. I don't really like what you said there. And so I'm going to listen to this, but I'm going to ignore that. As if we would have the audacity to call God God and then relate to him that way. No, if God is God, then he is the one who gets to determine what we do and do not do, right? He is the one who gets to lay out for us what the good life is, what the obedient life is, what the life of righteousness actually looks like. And, and, and get this, all of us are going to be provoked somewhere. All of us are going to be challenged somewhere, regardless of what culture you're in. You see, I think that's actually one of the reasons why we can trust the Bible as being actually from God, is that no culture fully embraces it without a little head turn. No, no one culture receives everything that God has to say as if it's easy and it fits right in line. Sometimes he is countercultural, and this is actually good news for us. Because that means 21st century America doesn't have a corner on the truth market. We don't have life figured out. But here's the thing, something that maybe you haven't thought of before. Some of the very things that we read about in the scriptures that often are like, wait a second, I'm not so sure about that. If you were to go to other parts of the world, they'd be like, oh yeah, no problem. Makes total sense, of course. The wrath of God, of course we need a wrathful God. We need to have justice. He needs to punish wrongdoers. Some of the very things that we find very easy to receive, like God's scandalous love, or his great forgiveness, or his grace and his mercy, or his call to love our enemies. You go to other places in the world, you're going to see some pushback. The sexual ethics that many people push back here are often readily received in other places. Now, I bring this up to show you that God's word is actually divine in origin, and we should expect that if it's actually God's word. But in light of that, we are to relate to him by obeying it. 
And not just obeying some of it, but obeying all of it, realizing that in it, it is the good life. All that I'm commanding you today for your good. You see, one of the core lies that we sometimes believe about God is that when he restricts our freedom, he's doing so in a stingy way because he doesn't want us to have fun. We don't put it so bluntly as that, but that's what we believe in our heart of hearts. But actually, God's commandments are from a benevolent good God who wants us to enjoy the life he made. That's why when he gives them to us, they're such a gift because they're for our good. He is the one who made life. Of course he knows how to live it best. See, true freedom is not throwing off any and all restrictions, but rather embracing the right ones so that we can actually live the way we were called to live. Now, have you guys ever talked about the Old Testament or the Old Testament law, and someone says, you know what? You Christians are such hypocrites. You pick and choose. You, you, you like to obey what the Bible says about maybe sexual ethics or justice or not lying, but you eat shrimp cocktail. You have clothing that's made of mixed fibers. You pick and choose. You don't sacrifice animals. You pick and choose. You don't have these cleanliness laws and none. You, you don't obey the, the civic governing laws of the Old Testament like, you, like, like they did. What, what's going on? You guys ever, you ever heard that pushback? Why is it that maybe the Ten Commandments are applicable to some, but, but, but why we don't sacrifice lambs and turtle doves and, and goats anymore? Here's the thing. In the New Testament, we actually are, we relate to God on the basis of a different covenant, Uh, the covenant of Jesus, the new covenant that we're going to learn about, meaning the old covenant in some ways has, has passed away. We don't relate to God in the same exact way. However, much of God's heart and character that was revealed in the Old Testament is once again reaffirmed in the new. Much of the the moral law of God is reaffirmed by Jesus and held up by Jesus. And even the ceremonial and the civic law, Jesus said, "I've, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so if you can kind of think of the the Old Testament law as being like the ritualistic law having to do with the temple and the cleanliness laws and and things like that, the the civic law which has to do with justice and how they are to live together and relate to each other and the economic practices of ancient Israel, and then the moral law, the things that reveal God's moral heart and how we are to live together. In, In many ways, the moral law continues. The other ones were fulfilled in Jesus. And so there's a reason we don't sacrifice animals anymore. You know what it is? There was a true and greater sacrifice that came, and so we don't need to, because once for all, Jesus made payment for our sins. Praise the Lord. I'm so glad I don't have to kill sheep and goats here. That would get gross. Additionally, we we don't live in ancient Israel with that as our governing structure anymore, and so the laws that were specifically for them in that time and place aren't the same. Now, God's heart is often the same, as we'll see, his heart for the sojourner and the widow and the orphan, his heart of generosity, but they don't apply in the same way. Is this helping? Okay, it's kind of a complex argument, but Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law, and he does, and he does so perfectly, and then reaffirms God's heart so that much of the Old Testament law is binding, but not in the same way, but it does reveal God's heart for us and how we are to live as God's people. That wasn't even my notes, that was just for you guys, because I know that's something that you get all the time. Why is it that you you obey this, but then you eat bacon? It's because of some of those things. All right, so we are called to fear God. We are called to obey God. We are called to love God. 
See, this obedience to God is, is, is meant to come from a heart that actually responds to him in love, not a heart of compulsion. God wants us to feel, freely respond to his initiating love with obedience toward him and affection for him. Now, why should God's people love God? Well, there's so many reasons. But Moses includes a couple in verses 14 and 15. Look at this. Behold, the Lord your God belong, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. So we read in verse 14 that God is God. He owns everything. He is transcendent and big and majestic. Yet, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your ancestors, not because they were awesome, but because he decided to love them. That in itself is amazing, but Moses goes on, and he chose you, their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Now just think about that statement. As you are this day. Day. You are the children of those who have broken faith in God. You are those who have joined in grumbling with your parents as you wandered the wilderness and they died there. That's who they were this day. And yet God chose to pour out his love and affection on them. He chose them in this moment. This teaches something about God and how he relates to people, doesn't it? God doesn't wait for us to be lovely in order to love us. He loves us and his love makes us lovely. See, we get that so backwards. You maybe came, and this is your first time in church in forever, and you think, you know what, i got to clean up my act uh, in order to come. i got to fix my life, and then I'll be worthy of the Lord. i got to try harder and do better. But God has always been the one who initiates relationship with his people. He takes us when we are a mess, when we are at the bottom, when we acknowledge our spiritual poverty before him, when we acknowledge, I got nothing, I bring nothing to the table, that's the person that God accepts. And we are lovely, not because God gets a good deal with us. We're lovely because he has chosen us and he makes us lovely. See, the people of Israel are got to be so glad that I wasn't in God's position in that time, and probably you weren't either. How many of you would have that kind of heart toward those who were stiff-necked and rebellious, who did nothing but grumble and talk about how good they had things in Egypt after all you'd done for them? It's a good thing I'm not God, isn't it? It's a good thing you're not too. We are to love him because of his initiating love in our life. So fear him, obey him, love him. Finally, in light of this, we're to serve him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The service that we are to offer to God is not to be half-hearted service or weak-willed obedience. We are to serve him with every fiber of our being, joyfully giving ourselves in service to him. Again, we do this because of what he has done for us. The creator and the transcendent God who chose us to be his people because of his loving kindness, his grace. God always has operated that way. Moses goes on in verse 16 to say, Circumcise, therefore, in light of what I've just told you, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Now, this command is a little weird, a little awkward. I really hope we talk about circumcision today at church, probably said by no one ever, right? But circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God had made with his people Israel. It set them apart as different. It was deeply personal and alluded to the shedding of blood to seal the covenant that was made. 
But what Moses is doing here in speaking of circumcision is talking about a different kind. He's alluding to a deeper need than simply an outward marker on God's people. But rather, he's alluding to the need for a new heart. There's a deeper need that God would set apart their hearts, do something profound, not just to them, but in them to change them. That God would circumcise their hearts. Now, two times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses uses this phrase of circumcision of the heart. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, which is kind of the close of his first message, they are said to circumcise the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. But then the second time is in Deuteronomy chapter 30, at the close of his final message. He, he closes his charge to this generation in much the same way. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 8, Moses tells them, after they affirmed the, all of the agreements of the covenant, then with that, obedience brings about blessing, disobedience brings about cursing and judgment. He says, I know you've agreed to this, but you're going to screw up. You are not going to obey God. You're not going to love him and serve him and fear him the way that you should. And so God's judgment is going to fall on you. You will be sent into exile because God will judge you. But when you realize your sin and you repent, God will once again bless you. That's what the first five verses of Deuteronomy 30 tell us. But then listen to this promise in, in verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. So Moses is saying, this is what is required of you, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, but you can't do that. You need something more than what you have internally. You need a new heart, a circumcised heart, and the Lord will do it. See, the difference between what he says in Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30, in Deuteronomy 10, he says, you are to circumcise your own heart, but they won't. But in Deuteronomy 30, he says, God will circumcise your heart. God will do this to you. In a nutshell, this is the difference between the old covenant, which they are reaffirming, and the new covenant, which is to come. And isn't it interesting, even as they are adopting the old covenant, even as they are, even as they are agreeing to it, they are pointing ahead to a different covenant because they're not going to be able to do it. All the way back here in the book of Moses, it's predicted that they are not going to be able to do it. And if you look ahead to some of the prophets, two of them, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they speak of this and they flesh out for us a little bit more what Moses was alluding to when he talked about the circumcision of the heart. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, this is what he said, Behold, the days are coming. Now, Jeremiah ministered in a time of the exile when the people of God were being judged and sent out into exile. And this is what he says to them, in great hope in the midst of judgment. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. We've heard that before, haven't we? Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. 
And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so in Deuteronomy 10, Moses has just retold them about how God cut out new tablets of stone for them. But now we see in the new covenant, God's law is not written on tablets of stone, but rather written where? On the human heart. That they will know God's law because he will do something profound to their heart so that they will know it. Rather than having to teach each other, it will be something new inside of them. What is it going to be? Well, Ezekiel helps us to understand that. These two guys who are kind of contemporary prophets, both speaking to the same thing, giving us greater clarity of what, Mo- what Moses was saying in Deuteronomy. Ezekiel chapter 36 says this. You guys still with me? You're like, we're bouncing around a lot, but this is going to put the whole story of the Bible together, okay? Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. That is good news, isn't it? For any of us who have felt the staining defilement of sin, either the sin we did or the sin done to us, that is good news that God will make us clean and wash us and pour out his spirit on us. Listen to this. See if you can recognize this language. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is good news from the Old Testament. A circumcised heart, a new heart with God's law written on it, a heart of stone in exchange for a heart of flesh with a new spirit, a new power poured out within us so that we can actually live out of these new desires and this new law written on our hearts. Guys, this is exactly what Jesus did. This is exactly what he did when he instituted the new covenant in which he was the the very sacrifice of it. He's fulfilling what was promised by Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Faith in Jesus gives us a new heart. When we put our trust in Jesus, not only are we given a new heart, but God's Holy Spirit is poured into our life. We are given a new power so that we can actually live in line with these new desires that want nothing more than to love God with every fiber and shred of our being. We have a new power to resist the lingering and old appetites of sin and brokenness of the flesh and a new heart that beats for different things. Why do we need it? Because you and I, like the Israelites, can't keep God's commandments ourselves. We fail over and over and over again. We need a new heart with new desires and a new power at work within us. If Israel's history teaches us anything, it's this, we can't save ourselves. We can't obey what we know is true without the supernatural work of God. But that's exactly what God does for us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. I would even say... It's the only reason you can respond to Jesus in faith because the Spirit is working and opening your eyes and setting you free. Jesus uses the language of being born again because it's such a radical reorientation of our life that it's like a new life lived by the same person. Now, can I just level with you guys for a second? All this talk about a new heart or a circumcised heart, God's law written on our heart. Can I tell you what you don't need a new heart for? You don't need a new heart to want to go to heaven. Everybody wants that. You don't need a new heart to want to be forgiven of your sin 
or to be free of the guilt and the shame that you feel. Everybody wants to be free of those things. But you do need a new heart to love God with every fiber and shred of your being. That's not a natural thing. You do need a new heart to love your neighbor as yourself. You do need a new heart to see Jesus differently, not as a sad but inspiring story, but as your Lord and your Savior, your King and your God, and the one worth living all, living all of life for. You need a new heart for that. People don't just do that. It takes the heart surgery of the Holy Spirit to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. But then what we see in Moses' words is that a new heart, a circumcised heart, produces in you a different kind of life, in particular with how you relate to your neighbor. Look at this, verse uh, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Fearing God, obeying God, loving God, serving God always leads to a profoundly different way of relating to your neighbor. We are to love our neighbor and care for the vulnerable because that's what God does, and that's who God is. We're told that God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is mighty. He is awesome. We wouldn't be shocked by that at all. He said that over and over again. And yet the next statement would have shocked the original hearers. It was the most countercultural thing you could have said. Not that God is just, but that God profoundly identifies, not with the strong and the mighty, but with the most vulnerable. He cares about justice for the fatherless, the widow, he loves the sojourner. See, in the ancient world, the, the gods of the people most closely identified with the powerful, the rich, the beautiful, the mighty, the strong, the who's who of a culture, but not Yahweh, not Israel's God. No, here we see him doing the exact opposite. He identifies with and cares for the most vulnerable and needy in their midst, the orphans, the widows, and the refugees. See, this is a lesson that needs to be learned over and over and over again by God's people. It is not in the halls of power where God is usually found, but it is among, it is among the most needy and vulnerable where we see the presence of God, where we see God identify. And so in light of this, God says, as my people, you are to act justly and mercifully to those who are most vulnerable. And he lists out the orphans or the fatherless, the widows, and the sojourners, he says, remember, you were sojourners in Egypt and you were treated terribly. Don't be like that. Be different. These commands are reiterated again in the New Testament by Jesus' half-brother James. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We see that the first thing, one of the first things to happen to the Son of God after he was born as he was forced to flee to Egypt as a sojourner or a refugee. What do we make of this? The way that many of us have viewed power, at least in like the Christian evangelical world in the last few decades, has not been primarily shaped by God and his kingdom, but rather by the corrupted power systems of the world. The influence of God's rule and reign is propagated not primarily by seizing institutions of power 
and forcing or an influence and forcing change in them. Nor is it by getting celebrities to talk about how cool Jesus is, but rather by faithfully serving even when it costs us something. By aligning ourselves not primarily with the who's who of those who seem successful, but often with the nobodies and the vulnerable. Why? Because it is them that understand the kingdom of God. Jesus, in his most famous sermon, began with these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. The one who understands... (coughs) Excuse me, got a little carried away. The one who understands their own spiritual poverty and neediness before the Lord, that's the poor in spirit, is the one who actually grasps and understands and gets the kingdom of God. Who embrace a poverty of spirit and throw themselves on the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And so the way that we respond reveals much about what we think of God and much about what we think of ourselves, doesn't it? How are they to respond to this? They were to respond in worship and in faith. Read verse 21 and 22. He is your praise. He is your God. The one who identifies with the vulnerable and the needy, who has done great things for you, these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. God did it for you when you were powerless and needy. He rescued you. He saved you. He stretched out his arm and performed these signs and wonders. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. He's alluding to what happened during Jacob's story and Joseph's story, but now you've come back as numerous as the stars in heaven. The very promise that God made to Abraham, he is fulfilling here, isn't he? God has done it, and so let him be praised. He has done these things for you. He is fulfilling his promises for you. Respond to him in worship and praise and humility. So what do we do with all of this? I told you that the words that Moses is speaking to the people are relevant to us today. How so? I have two things for you. First, you need a new heart. We need a new heart, a heart that loves God and loves our neighbor. We need his Holy Spirit to dwell in us and empower us to live the life of fearing him and obeying him and serving him and loving him. How do I know if I have a new heart? Well, I, want, I love nothing more than God. And I want nothing more than to serve him and serve other people. If that's true in your heart of hearts, that is a work of God in you because that's not the natural state of mankind. The commands to fear him and love him and obey him and serve him don't come to you as a drudgery, but rather a joy and an invitation to truly live. When you look at Jesus, you see something more. You see something significant, not just for the world, but for you. He is your salvation. He is your God. He is your praise. How do I get a new heart if I don't feel those things? Simply you respond to the gospel. You believe in Jesus. You believe what he says about you is true. You acknowledge your poverty of spirit before God. It means you acknowledge that you are a sinner and incapable of saving yourself. And in Jesus, you see that wonderful Savior. You put your faith and your trust in him. You believe that what he did, he did for you, that you might be forgiven and saved. And if you're even considering that, if you're thinking, yes, I want that, that is a good indication to you that you have a new heart. Because you wouldn't otherwise. You wouldn't see him otherwise. Here's the thing, a new heart is not something we can do ourselves. 
It's not something that I can produce as a preacher. It is a, it is a work of God. He has to do it. And I pray that he does. And so I need you to know that you need a new heart today. Some of you, maybe you have a new heart, but, but maybe you need a renewed heart like David prays for in Psalm 51 when he's aware of his sin. Create in me a, a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Maybe you're here this morning not needing to be converted, but, but needing to be renewed. Needing God's spirit to pour out on you in a fresh way that you might live for him. You might fear him and obey him and serve him and love him as you ought. And maybe today, proper response is simply to confess your sin and believe and say, God, renew me. Make me care about the things that you care about, which leads us to the second thing. How you treat the marginalized and the vulnerable says much about the God that you serve. Pay, pay careful attention to how you view others because our love for God produces in us a love for our fellow man. Who are the most vulnerable in our midst that need to be loved well? Well, in many ways, the orphan, the widow, and the refugee. Practically speaking, and I don't do this to guilt anybody because this is a bad guilt project. If you are guilted into this and God doesn't call you into this, it's going to be miserable. However, I just want to let you know that there are so many kids right now in foster care because they can't go home to their home right now because it's not safe. Who takes care of them? People who open their home and want to show the love of God to them. That's who cares for them. Sometimes other close relatives care for them. But did you know in the state of Minnesota, there's about a thousand kids whose parental rights have been terminated, meaning they can't go back. It's not a safe place. And they are wards of the state. They are orphans. Do you know that there's almost 4,000 churches in the state of Minnesota? Do the math. Not even every church would need to move and work in that. One out of four each year would need to say, hey, you know what? There's one family in our church that we're going to surround and we're going to adopt these kids and make sure that they have a loving home. Maybe your heart beats for not the, the local orphans, but maybe the global poor, those living in abject poverty. There are people in our church that are doing incredible things that would love to talk with you. I know Deb Waters serves on a board called Orphan's Joy who seeks to meet the needs of the most vulnerable around the, around the world. She'd probably love to talk with you about how you could get involved in that, but we care for the orphans in our midst. Widows. In our world, widows are a little different. Many of them are able to take care of themselves financially, but still need the love and the support of church families. A willingness to stop by and fix things. An invitation to a meal together. A willingness to talk with them about their spouse who died that they love and don't want to forget. An invitation into your life. An adoption maybe into your family locally. And here's the thing that you find out. You gain so much more than you give, often in those situations. Refugees. Nobody chooses to live the life of a refugee. You know that most refugees, for often a long period of time, live in 10 by 10 tents that barely keep out the elements. Often leaving a once prosperous life only to start over somewhere with literally nothing because it's not safe to go home. Do you know the average amount of time a refugee spends between when they leave their home and when they're fully settled in a new country? At least in our country? 17 years. 17 years before they're fully settled. They might have gotten through some of the red tape. I don't think terrorists are that committed 
I bring this up because during one of the greatest refugee crises of, of our modern history, our country has virtually shut the borders to refugees. They've reduced the numbers to places that they've hardly ever been before. And this is both Republican and Democrat, so I'm not getting overly political, okay? That's shameful. We've chosen fear and fear-mongering rather than to welcome in and respond to the alien and the sojourner and the refugee. Some of these are incredible people. Often our response to those who are immigrants, who, who left everything to come here to try to build a better life, is one of skepticism and fear rather than welcome, and it should not be among the people of God. Do you know someone in your life who maybe is starting over, maybe a neighbor, maybe a classmate, uh, maybe someone that you work with uh, who's an immigrant? This is not their homeland. This is not their country. How far would it go for you to extend a hand and say, welcome, come share a meal with me? Do you know how much you might benefit to say, hey, tell me your story. I'd love to hear. Your, your world would get much bigger. Your attachment to some of the things that you hold so dear might get a little loosened, and that's a good good thing. See, the people of God are called to care for the most vulnerable in our midst, meaning the orphan and the widow and the sojourner and the refugee. And often people learn lots about not only us, but the God that we serve by our posture toward the least of these. Brothers and sisters, I say that not to shame or to guilt, but to say we can do better. Not in our own strength. We need a new heart and a new power at work within us. But praise the Lord that he sends us the Holy Spirit of God to empower us to do things we couldn't do on our own, like this kind of scandalous love and welcome and mercy. That, I think, more than clever arguments, is going to win the day in our culture. It's going to give us opportunity to share with people the hope that we have in him because he actually makes a difference in us. I think we can be that people. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it provokes us and challenges us. I pray, God, that you would give us new hearts that love you and love other people with every fiber of our being. God, I pray for the Christian today who feels defeated and has forgotten the power that is at work in them. Would you encourage them that they have everything they need to obey you today? God, for the person who's here who's maybe never trusted you, I pray that you would do that heart surgery now, even as I pray to open their eyes to Jesus, to give them a new heart that longs to believe in him and love him and treasure him above all things. And God, I even pray for the person who's grown up in church and learned all of the right answers, but there's not a shred of love in their heart toward you. I pray that now in this moment you would overwhelm them and circumcise their heart. Pour out your spirit on them now that they might have a complete reorientation to Jesus. God, for you to do that, it's not my power. It is clearly a demonstration of your power. And would you do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.